This is David Pastor, CEO of Claire House. You're listening to the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. And in this episode, myself, Alex Owen, academic developer, and Matt Davis, organisational developer, sat down with David Pastor, the CEO of Clare House, a charity that provides care for serious and terminally ill children across Merseyside and the Wirral. We discussed David's approach to leading through the pandemic and the impact lockdown has had on the charity. We hope you enjoy. Okay, David, we're really pleased to be speaking to you today. We're delighted to have a representative of one of our Live to Give charities with us. Live to Give is our volunteering framework, which provides staff with three days of volunteering leave each year. So before we start, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you've arrived at the position you're in now? Well, thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this today. It's not nice to have a bit of therapy, actually, to talk about, you know, talk about me for a bit. Never get to do it. Um, So I started my working life at British Airways um, doing a graduate scheme, which was really interesting, but it didn't take me very long before I worked out that I wasn't that bothered about putting people on airplanes. Um, And so I think when that penny drops quite early in your career, you sort of think, well, what else could I do? So um, I travelled for a bit, um, cashing in on my BA concessions, and then did a bit of research when I came home, kind of what was the sort of job that I thought I could do. And a job pops up in The Guardian, working for a children's charity called WizKids, that provide mobility equipment to disabled children. And I applied for a job in events fundraising, so persuading people to run marathons and the like, and got it. And I thought, well, that will do for a year. And here I am 20 years later in the same sector. Brilliant. Um, so... And I suppose, you know, when you're, when you're having that careers advice, either at school or university, you know, it's funny that no one ever said to me, you could have a career in the charity sector. It just wasn't a thing. And I suspect that's one of the challenges for society is that we're preparing people for a future of work, but we don't know what the future of work looks like. And so for me, I meet a lot of people now and try and take the pressure off them to say, well, don't worry about whatever it is you're supposed to do, follow the things that you're good at and that you're enjoying and something, you know, usually you'll find your way. And that's certainly how it was for me. Um, so I, I then realised that I was quite good at this fundraising lark um, and persuading people to raise money for a good cause and it felt good for me. So it was a win-win. And I took on more responsibility and gradually kind of got to a position where I was managing more than fundraising um, moved into the children's hospice sector and picked up more management experience. And I think it's just that kind of something needed to be done and I would quite happily pick it up. I'd quite happily do it. Um, and the job then was slightly more than 10 years ago, roughly 10 years ago. And um, I applied thinking, well, there's no way I'm going to get that job. Um, 36 at the time. Just, you know, a bit, bit of fun. Let's apply for it, see what happens. Now, the reason we applied, I applied for the job is because my wife's family is from this part of the world. And it just seemed like, you know, why not? Why not? Won't get it. So it's not going to be a problem. And of course, then I think I realised halfway through the interview, I thought, I remember this sense of panic <laughs> going to offer me the job. Um, and, and I thought the interview had gone quite badly until, so I'd, I'd come in to the interview and I remember this moment of, I think I was the last candidate of the day and there were just kind of half drunk mugs of coffee and bits of biscuits and kind of mess all over the place. And there was a volunteer, I think, who was clearing the room. And so I was invited in and rather than sitting down and, you know, doing my tie and looking all professional, I started to clear the room, which obviously um, made me stand out from perhaps some of the other candidates. But I remember thinking, oh, no, they think they're interviewing a tea boy. <laughs> um, which so you know but it wasn't it was it was just a well if we need clearing i may as well clear it um but i i, I think so halfway through the interview this panic of they're going to offer me the job um and sure enough driving home back to oxford i got the call from the chair of trustees saying well you know that they'd be delighted to offer me the job and i remember saying i, I can't accept it at this point because i've got people to talk to you know i've got a wife two young children we've got to uproot our entire lives 
I just need some time to think about this. Um, and then spent the following three days in panic, uh, thinking kind of what, you know, what on earth do we do here? Um, but it was at a point in our lives when it just made sense to, you'd better to regret the things you have done than the things you haven't. And I thought, well, even if I make a mess of it, it'll be an interesting experience. And so here we are 10 years later. Yeah, but it's a case of following my heart, I think. So what I really like about that story is um, what you were saying about clearing the coffee cups. And I should have said in, the, in our intro that you and I know each other outside of work. So we both volunteer as um, governors on a governing board for local primary school. Um, and also our children are best friends. So we see each other quite a bit. And one thing I have noticed about you is that kind of servant heartedness. So even we've had you over for dinner and you cleared our table. I remember it very clearly. You did. Because Emma was kicking me under the table. My wife is probably saying, <laughs> pull your finger out. Yeah, but do you think that that's something that, that makes you you in terms of, obviously you lead at a very, very high level, but do you still keep real in terms of, wanting to serve others and to, you know, clear tables, for example. My, my, my job, I view my job as trying to help other people do the best job they can. So it's never, ever, I've never felt comfortable being the big I am or the, that kind of authoritative leadership is just not me. Mm -hmm. um, I'd much rather be in the background. And I'll say to people regularly in any part of our work, just tell me what it is you want me to do. So if I come to an event, give me a brief, I'll, I'll do whatever, I'll be on the door. I will say something if you want me to say something, but I'm not going to push myself out there to be what I think. You know, it's not about me. It's about what what the children and families need or what our volunteers and staff need. So, yeah, I'd rather be behind people, um, pushing them forwards and helping them to do the best they can. And that's probably my style. Um, it's not to everyone's taste. You know, some people do, you know, particularly in pandemic times, I've had some feedback that is around, we need more forceful leadership. And I suppose I disagree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I think, and, and we, you know, we found that in trying to give people space and give people responsibility and allow the right people with the right skills to be involved in the right discussions and shape their own destiny, that for me is far more powerful. And do you think that leadership style is what drew you to working in this specific field in Clare House? Do you think that for now, we, uh, at least, that kind of leadership style is required when, when, when leading this charity? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You'll have to ask everyone at Clare House that. Okay. <laughs> um, it, it's, I don't think you can dress yourself up into something that you're not. I think if, you know, if I swallowed the Alan Sugar book of, management and leadership I think people would think there was an alien that's landed um, and yet there are people who lead that way I think it's outdated um, you know you, even in even in the 70s 60s and 70s there's you know the, the top management thinkers were very clear on that concept of essentially servant leadership you know it's about bringing the best out in others and not being afraid to get your hands dirty and do whatever needs to be done um, it's a great book by Bob Townsend called Up the Organisation, uh, really worth a read. And it's written in the hmm, 70s. And it's his experience of working, I think it's at Avis, and taking Avis car rental and taking it from kind of the doldrums to being the leading car rental business in the US. And it's just fascinating. It's a dead easy read. I mean, it's literally a, an hour's read. But it kind of goes through his lessons on leadership. Um, and it, and it's, it's just kind of very in your face, but very kind of, you know, that kind of whole concept of leaders eat last or you know, don't ask other people to do stuff that you're not prepared to do yourself. Do you really understand your business if you haven't worked on the front line? So one of the things he did was put himself on the check-in desk. Just go and work on the check-in desk and then you, then you can see all the problems that your organisation has. So I wouldn't say I necessarily go that far. You know, I'm not. I'm very happy to, so obviously we provide, Playhouse provides the highest possible quality care essentially to dying children and I'm not a nurse. So in terms of competency, you know, I shouldn't be allowed, I shouldn't be <laughs> front facing in that, in that sense, but I'm very happy to be with our care team and talk to our care team and to understand, try to understand their challenges and the things that help them to do the best job they can. Um, but it's a balance, you know, you can't, um, if you're too forceful, you get in the way and you need to give people space to be able to do their job. 
David, over the last, uh, I don't know, last five years or so, I've been working with the Charity Learning Consortium on a fair few things, and most recently um, through their Clear Lessons uh, Foundation that they set up. And through those meetings and uh, those events, I found that there's a certain type of person that works in the charitable sector. You're, you come across as one of those types of people. So what, what is it? Um, is it a calling working in that sector? Is it is it just is it a, something to do with not wanting to um, sort of earn money for a director of a private company or something like that? What is it that draws you, or what drives you in that way? Um, well, I mean, I was going to ask you: is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good thing. Sector. Um, I personally, it's just the reward of. Uh, being able to do something that you are good at, being able to do something that makes a difference to other people and be paid for it. And so you get those three things and what's not to like. I suppose for me, I never ever went into it to earn a lot of money. I kind of accepted that very early on. That, But then you know, how much money do you really need? I mean, this is starting to get, you know, you get into existential questions and there is some, it's quite a body of research out there that says that in terms of your own, happiness in your life there's an ideal amount of money which means you can pay your bills you can pay your mortgage you can buy food and you can have nice experiences in your life beyond that amount i don't can't remember exactly what it is but i suspect it's between sort of 40 50k beyond that amount it's the law of diminishing returns the more you earn does not buy you more happiness you know it, it, it's happiness is not money and so that was I didn't know that at the time, but it didn't particularly bother me. Um, but then I suppose if you are good at what you do, you do have choices to take on more responsibility and earn more money. But if you go into any career just looking for money, then you are just, well, the likelihood is you're going to be miserable, aren't you? Yeah. So I think the opportunity to make a difference to other people. Um, my mum was a paediatric physiotherapist working at a special school. And so I don't know whether some of it came from there or just whether it's just part of you, whether you, you just have that kind of, I wouldn't call it a calling at all. I'd say it just seemed to make sense to me. Well, hang on, I can, I can do a job that I really quite enjoy and be paid for it. Great. <laughs> you know, I thought work was supposed to be miserable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that adage, isn't it? Love what you do and do what you love or the other way yeah. around. I can't remember. And I got to tie some other cool stuff as well. So I got to, you know, run marathons and walk up mountains. So, you know, it, it just it ticks a lot of boxes for me. Yeah, that does sound cool. So focusing on Clare House, Clare House has also been voted one of the University of Liverpool's Live to Give charities, both last year and this year. So taking from that, the charity is very close to many of our staff members' hearts. What advice would you give to someone that uh, would like to start supporting a charity during the pandemic? So the first question is what's stopping you? Because it's, there's lots of different ways that you can support any charity. And so the first question is like, A, what's stopping you? B, pick something that's really close to your heart. So for whatever reason, it it needs to matter to you. Otherwise you won't have the motivation to do it. Um, So, yeah, all of us at some point in our lives will be touched by the work of a charity. And so find the, the, the range of char- charity or charities that you would love to make a difference to. Um, so that would be num- number one. Number two is then interact with that charity in a way that gives you what you need. So it's kind of quite, a, you need a bit of self-awareness in there to know, well, actually, I really love running, so I'm going to do a marathon or whatever. Or I love walking that mountain, so I'm going to do that. Or I love the sense of community that I get from being with people, so I'll go, go and volunteer in a shop. Um, or I really like desk-based research, and so I'd like to volunteer my time to help an organisation to forward sort of a bit of work they're doing. So I know that we had um, one of the Liverpool Uni students who did some research for us on equality and diversity, which has helped to shape, shape our approach to E&D within Clare House. So that that's... You know, that's a good example of even in lockdown, people can do stuff to help. Um, so that, but the, the key is it has to, it, has, well, it, sh- it should really matter to you. Um, Clare House is a, just a, it's a real privilege because 
I think people support us for lots of different reasons, but at the top of the tree is it is genuinely awful to think that um, we have, you know, in, in even in our area, in the area of Merseyside, we would support nearly 100 children at the end of their lives every year. And that is just, is vital that that happens. And that can only happen in partnership between a charity like Clare House and the NHS. So we work in partnership with other agencies to make sure that as many children and families as possible have the best possible experience at the end of that child's life. Um, and then that has that knock-on impact of maybe families stay together. Maybe um, the healthy siblings of that child can get through school and get decent grades and you know live their life without regret. And it's maybe that mums and dads kind of know that they did the very best they could for their child at that time, despite the terrible circumstances, but they have that memory of knowing I did everything I could. And so the long-term impact of that care has a, has a wider impact on society, which touches many more people than we perhaps recognize. Um, and I think, so there's that, there's that kind of, there's a reason there to support a charity like Clare House, which is quite compelling. And that then builds the motivation into fundraising and volunteering. Yeah, that, that's definitely a compelling case. And I guess it's not just, it's, I mean, it's not just the outcomes for the children that we're talking about. There's an outcome for the person who's volunteering, isn't there? There's an outcome for, for people getting involved. Is, do you think that's the biggest thing for that is their own sense of well-being or, or is there something else in there? Every volunteer will have a different motivation. Um, so I did some research around volunteering motivations as part of an MBA a few years ago. And um, what we found was that it's tuning into those motivations that is vital so that you're not perhaps placing people in the wrong roles or not interacting with them in the right way. Because the relationship with a volunteer is very different to a paid member of staff. I would say, A, it's listening. It's oxygen you're trying to tick here. Is it community? Is it um, furthering your career opportunities? Is it that you need a sense of kind of making a difference in the world? And so most of the time it's a Venn diagram of, all of these different things. So the biggest feedback that we get is that sense of pride. So we, we try really hard to help people to understand the direct difference that they make. So we're, we're always writing kind of these case studies of children and families that have been helped as a result of someone's support during that period of time that they've been raising money or volunteering for us. And um, we want to kind of, we want it to be a symbiotic relationship. You know, you want it to be genuinely a joyful experience so our role is kind of you know it might seem funny doesn't it children's hospice dealing with quite a difficult subject but also dealing in joy joy is our currency you know <laughs> look at what you did look at this life that you changed look at these lives that you have changed and that's that's just massively rewarding for everyone involved so when that fundraiser hits their target to be able to write to them and say the thousand pounds you've raised has changed all of these child's lives. You've paid for X number of family meals around the table or X number of hydrotherapy sessions or all of this counseling or the team that support that child at the end of their life. You know, you kind of, you can make it really real for people. And, you know, you then, you know, you just feel like you've done your job then as a, as either a fundraiser or as a, a charity, you feel like everybody won, you know, everybody got to feel like they made a difference in the world. So that's kind of, it's, that, that's, that's, the, that's the pinnacle. That's where, that's where we feel like the relationships really work. And it's not just this one way Claire House takes and says, Thank, thanks very much, um, and off you go. It's very much kind of, we want people to feel that sense of joy. So David, do you have any personal experiences of volunteering that you could share with us? It's funny, isn't it? You ask that question and you don't realise that you volunteer when you volunteer. <laughs> it doesn't really occur to you. So I think sometimes people think volunteering is a very formal thing and a very formal relationship. I probably started this when I was um, doing the Duke of Edinburgh's award when I was 16, 17, and I volunteered at my mum's school to help with a disabled sports club. And so I volunteered every Monday and it was way out of my comfort zone. You know, I wasn't I was, you know, it was way beyond what I was used to. 
So I, I used to do that every week. And then more recently, um, obviously through university, you do bits of volunteering that you don't really consider volunteering because you're following your passion. And then through, um, through the kids, as your kids get older, you then find yourself volunteering at their clubs, don't you? You have, so I do quite a bit with my daughter's running club. And again, I was kind of dragged into it. So, you know, you, you know, I do a bit of running. And so once people realize that, they then start to drag you in. Or could you come down to the track and help us with a session? And it's way out, again, way outside my comfort zone. I'm quite happy running on my own. I don't really know what to do with a bunch of 13-year-old kids. And so I just lend my, lend my time and be told what to do. So help, help one of my mates, just give me the training session. Tell me what it is you want me to do. And, um, and then obviously, as Alex said, through the school as well. So being on a governing body, which again, I learned loads from because again, it's outside of my comfort zone. It's just, I didn't really, I didn't know how schools worked, not really. Um, and so they threw me onto the finance committee, which was kind. <laughs> and it's, so you do all, all these bits that you do in your life that you don't really consider to be volunteering. And then you look back and go, oh, I do do a bit of volunteering. Um, and it, I love the stuff that I love the most are the things that you feel proud of at the end of the day. And you think, do you know what? I, I was really nervous as heck for that training session or, um, you know, meet a whole bunch of kids you never met before who were relying on you to guide them through a session or to <laughs> stop them getting lost in Coldy Woods. Um, or on a governor session where you're trying to understand how the finances of a school work. And it's really rewarding. It's, I just find it learning something new with new people. At the time, I find very nerve wracking. But when you look back, you go, oh, that, it was, wasn't as scary as I thought it would be. And it was way more rewarding than I ever thought it would be. So you feel that you feel proud of yourself, don't you? And it's I think a lot of people are, would be put off volunteering because it, that first step feels like a really massive step. But I think a lot of people volunteer without realizing and then it's building that confidence to say, well, no, you, you could do more and it's not as scary as you think it's going to be. And the, the scariest bit is the first step. Once you've taken the first step, everything else falls into place. Matt, did any volunteering? Um, no, <laughs> I don't. I don't, I, I, I don't do any volunteering, no. And it's something that came up in a, in a team meeting at work um, a few months back. Actually, just right at the beginning of the pandemic, we we all got very excited about doing a beach clean as part of some of our volunteering days that we get as part of the university's sort of allowance of volunteering days. And it was at that point I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, that sounds good to me. I'm going to do stuff like that. And then the pandemic hit and, and I didn't, I didn't sort of, I didn't continue it. I did start to raise money during the pandemic though, which is something I've never, ever done before. Um, so I, I got on my bike through August, um, broke my arm at the end of it didn't quite meet the target I was supposed to meet but still raised still did a good job of raising about 400 pounds for charity so um so yeah and there's a lot there's a lot in that that felt really really good so um it's something I'm definitely going to be taking forward because it just as a selfish point of view the the benefits for my own well-being just doing those sort of things are actually huge I think you're right I think exactly what you're saying there's so many benefits to to volunteering and I like what you said David about I mean particularly on the governing board that you and I both sit on I learn so much more than I give um, you know we've got a real privileged position to be on a governing board full of people who are at the top of their careers um, and I just sit back and, and watch in terms of the way that people engage with each other um, and the way that I mean who knew, even this time last year, that we'd be leading a school through a pandemic and making it up as we go along. Um, so it's, it's a real privilege to sit on that board. But one thing I've specifically noticed about you on that board, which is really interesting, has really challenged me, is you usually lead with a question. Um, so instead of just launching in and telling people, well, this is the way we should do things, um, you often or usually um, ask the rest of the governors or me or the head teacher a question um, to get us thinking and then and then you give your perspective and I really really like that technique um, is that something that you've um, used in terms of your leadership at Clare House specifically thinking now about how you've led through a pandemic so kind of what leadership qualities and skills have you really had to employ over recent months 
So I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the one I find, the habit I find hardest, I think it's number four, which is seek first to understand. I hate it. I, I love it, but I hate it. Because, you know, you, you, you're being very kind and listening to my experiences and opinions now. But normally I have to dial that right back and shut, and shut up, sit on my hands. Because otherwise... You're just, you just take over meetings with opinions. And who cares about people's opinions? You know, they're just opinions. What you want to do is you want to hear from the experts. You want to kind of go, right, I may, maybe got a seed of an idea or an opinion in the back of my head. I'm going to try and push that out of the way and work out how to frame that as a question. So I'm going to test an opinion rather than a, or try and ask an open question. Because my opinion is just an opinion. I think that kind of, that's a really hard realisation that, you've had this kind of range of experiences in your life, but they're quite linear. They're just you. And if you're in a meeting with 10 other people, there's 10 brains in the room that you could be using. And, you know, we all hate sitting meetings, don't we, when you've got someone who's just on one. <laughs> and you, we've all got them. You know, you've all got, you've all got those people who just, you think, oh, grief, we've got so-and-so in the meeting and they're just going to talk. And you can't, no matter what you do, you can't shut them up. And there's a place for that because it does, it, you know, people who live up meetings like that will generate debate. But I think that that learning for me, I've tried, I'm, I'm glad you've noticed. I try really hard because it's not natural. Uh, I'd much rather give my opinion, thanks very much, than listen. But when you realise that you're, by giving that space, you're providing value, you're, you're, you're widening a debate and you're bringing in people who perhaps wouldn't normally speak that's that's performance then you you kind of you you know you you're, a you're getting much more enjoyable interaction you might learn something yourself um there's a great uh an indian proverb and i think it says something like listen or thy tongue will keep thee deaf so that idea of every, every time you're speaking just like i am now <laughs> You're not hearing someone else's experience, so you're not you're not learning and growing. You're just handing out wisdom, which is only your wisdom, you know. So I think it's a really important part of leadership. And I would I would so look at someone like Bill Gates. He's just a massively inquisitive man. I, I just like, and you meet people who are genuinely inquisitive, and you think I want to be like that because someone like that has got like. The size of his brain is incomprehensible. And yet he doesn't sit there necessarily giving his opinion. He's there going, well, tell me more about you or your, your ideas or your views. And it's, it's just like, so someone like that can be focused on asking the questions. Then that's something perhaps all of us could learn from, particularly in leadership. And I think applying that to a pandemic, really understanding that feeling of, we're all in the same storm, but different boats. It's so easy to assume that everyone's having the same experience. And at Clare House, that's just not been the case. So we've got a care team that are working, you know, as far as they can as, as normal, you know, being there for children and families in their own homes, in hospital, um, and then at the hospice. And then we've got people in administrative roles that are, kind of have to work from home unless they're directly supporting the care team. Then you've got a fundraising team that haven't been able to do a lot of their job over the last year. Uh, a retail team where at the moment shops are all shut. And then a thousand volunteers of which perhaps 800 of them have not been able to fulfill their, their role. And um, so you kind of have all of those experiences that are all different. So trying to, I think in leadership terms, trying to tune in to that fact that Every single person you're speaking to has got a different experience. Don't just assume that you've got the solution. Listening is more powerful than giving opinions. You know, feeling listened to is a really powerful human need, I think. Actually, somebody's bothered to listen. Someone's bothered to ask a question. Someone's bothered to say, how are you, and listen to the response. It can be as simple as that. That, I like that Indian proverb. I think one of the ones that I like is the Mark Twain one where he says, if we were meant to talk more than listen, we'd have two mouths and one ear. It's one of my favourites. Um, so 
I mean, is there anything specific that you've done as a leader to maintain morale and motivation uh, with your staff during this time? Uh, my, my general feeling is people are tired, you know, yeah. tired and worn down. Even the most well-balanced, on-it person is feeling a bit like, you know, we've had enough now. <laughs> and so it's very difficult to kind of, we can't, we can't take responsibility for other people's uh, feelings and experiences um, all the time. We, we can a bit. So as an organization, we try really hard. And so I think listening is crucial. I think we provide lots of opportunities for interaction. So one of the really fun things that we've done is introduced a, uh, a big call. So a whole organization call where anyone can join it. And we'd never have done this if it wasn't for COVID. You know, just and lots of organizations of, of, of doing it again way outside of my comfort zone i just send out an invite to a team's call once a month and it's open to everyone anyone can join it and we usually get about um between 70 to 90 people on these calls uh, from across the organization so again that whole range of people and i usually do a bit at the start which is kind of hi everyone hope you're okay a little bit of banter and then we descend into kind of some serious stuff where we talk about how we're doing across the organization, what's going on in care, um, how we're doing financially, which has been, you know, a terrible year <laughs> for most people. Um, the impact of that. So we've had to make some quite tough changes. Um, it has included some redundancies, which is not what we wanted, not what we planned, but you can't hide from the truth. So I think fronting that and being honest about that is really important. Don't lie to people, tell them the truth. Mm. Um, and then we then do a shout outs. So we, what we introduce perhaps a bit like a, a bit like a radio show, you kind of bring in a couple of people who are gonna lighten the mood a bit. Cause usually what I've got to say is a bit, either a bit dull or a bit too serious. And who wants to sit through that once a month? So we bring in two or three teams that are doing something interesting, cool, different, uplifting usually something from fundraising or volunteering or care or, you know, kind of rooting us in. This is what we're here to do. This is how we're doing. And then the third thing we do is shout outs. So anybody can send me somebody who just deserves to be mentioned. And we usually get 10 minutes worth. And I just read through verbatim what I'm sent. And quite regularly, it seems to end in people in tears. And I'm there desperately trying to read off a script and keep, you know, keep myself going. And I can hear kind of, you know, we just same as Zoom, little chat box on the side and people are throwing in all sorts of, you know, compliments and nice things in there, a bit of banter. And it's just a, I find them really uplifting those calls, even though they've got quite a significant, serious element to them. They've also got the fun element to them as well. So it's an opportunity for us to live our values of what one of which is fun, another of which is together we're stronger. So that is... That's something we would never have done if it wasn't for COVID, but it was very much, again, outside of my comfort zone. I just thought, I tested it out with a few people. I said, what do you think? They said, well, I, I, God knows how to work for us. Why don't we just try? So I just sent out the invite and we pretty much made it up as we went along. It sounds great. It sounds well, really it, you know, it's, it's And it's not as stressful as I thought it would be. So I, don't, I used to dread them. You, know, you think, oh God, here we go. You get all keyed up for it. But now we've got a format. And it's, it shows, shows you it's not all about planning and getting something perfect. Sometimes you just got to go with stuff. Um, and then the other that we do quite quite a bit to try to open conversations with people. So in clinical terms, we have clinical supervision, um, an opportunity just for the care team to talk through their experiences, particularly of care over a period of time to make sure that they're not going home with too much um, kind of unpacked or closed baggage, you know, it's trying to un unpack it and just make sure people have got an opportunity to talk. The advantage of providing a service in the middle of a pandemic is that people do actually see each other. So we've not been quite as uh, badly hit in those terms as a lot of organisations have. Um, and then we do some pretty basic stuff around employee assistance programmes and counselling for people who need it. And um, But it, it's been, uh, you know, the, the, the jewels have been those things that have been owned by people outside of leadership. So the person who wants to organize the gym drinking evening, I'm, I'm, le I'm led to believe, and I have seen videos of how that went. It, it seems to go very well. <laughs> great. And, and that's, that's great. So those things are happening 
when they come from within an organization and you just give the organization license to just do stuff, just just give it a go, see what happens. Yeah. That's when not not the leadership or the top-down stuff, which is you know pretty basic. It's nice to see things coming from within. Mm. And and, that, and that's that's helped to lift people, I think, and keep people going. Bit yeah. That sense of organizational community. We've definitely seen that in our organization as well, haven't we, we Matt, where yeah. people have been really creative in, in thinking of different ways to motivate and, and to be there for each other, which has been so important. Um, how about engaging with outside organizations? For example, the university, has that supported some of your kind of motivation and morale as well? It's lovely to know that people care because you, you kind of, um, at the start of all this, you think, well, actually, our whole world is falling apart. And uh, the day that Rishi Sunak announced the furlough scheme, that was, you know, I'd spent the day thinking, what on earth are we going to do? Because we've got 25 shops that we're going to have to close and we can't pay people. We just can't, we, we can't pay people. I, I you know, I, don't, I, I genuinely don't know what we're going to do because we'd already then realized there was going to be a, a significant million pound hit on our fundraising plus then a half million pound profit hit on shops, but the shops were, you know, they're a two million pound turnover. So you've got all of that cost that suddenly just, is, you know, you're absolutely snookered. So I'd spent a couple of days in panic, <laughs> in, a, in a kind of, not in a, you know, it wasn't, you just have to front it. You just have to think, well, okay, we'll deal with what we can deal with as it happens. So the way through, I think, was quite difficult to see at the very start. Um, and to know then during, as we kind of hit that first couple of months, we still had that kind of feeling of people being out there caring. So you went from a very lonely position of thinking, we're, we're really up against it here, to then thinking, do you know what? Even if this year is horrible, it looks as though our supporters are gonna stick with us through thick and thin. And so the relationships we have with um, supporters like Liverpool University, it, doesn't matter the volume, you know, Dodo is, it, people get very focused on the targets and the kind of the hundred thousand pound relationships. It's not that it's knowing that people, where people's hearts are, knowing that they care, knowing that they believe in what you do, knowing that they might not be able to support you at that point, but they're there for you. And even through thick and thin, you know, that I think you did a Christmas jumper day, raised 500 quid, fantastic. And I think you did also did a staff survey where a pound was donated for every yep. survey that was completed um, yep. to the th to three different charities, including Clare House. So it's just being there in the consciousness that makes the right person go, oh, we can make this into a fundraising opportunity. And when that money comes through, hopefully we do a decent job of thanking you, but also it's great for us because we think, well, actually, no, we're, 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 we're okay. We just need to get through. Just carry on, take each day as it comes, keep getting through because those supporters, those volunteers, those those organizations that care will still be there the other side of that, uh, other side of that. So it gives us hope and motivation. You've mentioned finances as being obviously the mo one of the most challenging thing probably in 2020 for you. Um, you know, those opportunities for fundraising just would have completely vanished, I imagine. So looking forward. And as the CEO of Clare House, what do you think are the biggest challenges that are coming your way? So we've got a rocky road this year uh, coming. So our financial year runs um, April through to March. So we get this year out of the way. Um, we've survived this year because of government grants. So the furlough scheme has really helped. And then in the hospice sector, we've had some grants that have um, helped us continue to provide those services because obviously the government doesn't want, you know, can see the pressure on the NHS and then we, we pick up that secondary pressure. Um, so there's, no, there's no, 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 no one wins if we're not there to be able to support these children and families. Um, so that's been uh, a lifesaver that that government supports. Although it's been, it's been erratic and difficult to plan, you know, everyone else has had it worse than we have. Next year, that will obviously change. So the government will want to try and get us back to some kind of normal functioning society, but fundraising isn't a tap that you just turn on and off. Um, and so we are trying to be kind of sensible and cautious with our planning. Um, I talked a little bit about redundancies and we've had to, we have had to change the way that we work. Um, we're focused on impact. So let's focus on the things that make the biggest impact throughout the whole organization. 
So rather than make this conversation about money, let's make it a conversation about impact. Not all things we do are of equal value. And that's quite, that's quite hard when you could point to anything, any of our services, particularly you point to any of our services and say, well, they all add value. They do. But not all things we do are of equal value. So we would always prioritise end of life care as being our, that's the one thing we would never, ever stop. You know, it'd have to be a pretty dire day if we didn't, didn't do that. Um, have to be efficient and effective in our fundraising. So again, not all fundraising ideas are great ideas. So let's focus on the stuff that is giving us that kind of bigger return. And I think the third party fundraising through and volunteering through Liverpool University is a great example of that. You've got a team in place and know what they're doing. They just need the right conditions to be able to get out there and do the fundraising and volunteering. So we know that that will come back and it doesn't require us to put in weeks and weeks of support work. You know, we'll gladly do what you guys need us to do, but those relationships that kind of have the infrastructure to be able to support a charity independently are great. So it's a, it's a tough year ahead. And we also keep some savings to balance out the bumps in the road. So we've got some savings, which just allow us to have that kind of rocky period next year where we've got a huge amount of uncertainty in the hope that by the time we get to 2022, we've just got hopefully ever increasing certainty over where our funding is going to come from at that point. Um, that's not to say we won't, might not have to change further during the next year, but I think we're much more on the front foot now. We've kind of been able to confront, we've been able to confront change, face into it, accept it. You know, you can kind of, you, you can kind of rationalise it, can't you? You can say, it's horrible, but we have to do it. It doesn't mean it's any less horrible. So when I've been speaking to staff on our bigger calls or one-to-ones, being able to say, do you know, it's, it is horrible to have to say goodbye to friends. You know, it wasn't saying that they weren't doing a good job. It wasn't saying that we don't like them. It hurts. But we have to do the right thing for the children and families. And long term, that means keeping Claire House in the right place financially so that we can care for as many children and families as we can going forwards. And those two things are different things. So once you separate them out, it becomes a little bit easier to cope with. And also um, trying to share that responsibility so we now have um, one of the things we did during the pandemic was to really extend our leadership team. So we had a executive leadership team, which was relatively small and probably fit for purpose of about five years ago. We realized that we got this kind of 20 odd leaders within the organization that we just needed to have around the table to be able to manage our response to the pandemic. And so we've kept that forum and we're trying to now push as much work as we can through that 20, those 20 leaders rather than the five or six which then extends the responsibility. But then you're back to this concept of having 20 brains on the problem. You know, it's not me saying, right, I think we should do this, this, and this, and this is what we're gonna do. You know, at best, you might get lucky and some of it will work. Whereas if you engage with those 20 fantastic, intelligent, um, talented people, it might take you a bit longer to hit kind of the action plan, but you'll have a far more robust action plan that. Yeah, and, and we've got that skin in the game. Everyone cares that it succeeds. And so that going into next year is really exciting. You know, everybody cares that this works and everybody has got a, um, they've got the skin in the game, they care, they, they've, got, um, they've got a vested interest that their bit of the plan comes off because they've been listened to and they've had an opportunity to, to shape what we're doing as an organisation. So it's not, it's not, we're a long way from being out of the woods. Um, but I think we can see some light at the end of the tunnel, which feels better than it did six months ago, which just felt like this long, like unending, very dark place. Um, and so we're, and we are also lucky to be providing frontline services, which means a number of our staff have already had their first and some of them second vaccinations, which again, just is a really privileged position to be in. So obviously you can't fundraise in the same way, but it's like those straight donations, have they massively decreased as well? Is it a case yeah, of everyone looking after their own? Yeah, it's, there is a bit of fundraising fatigue. So I think when the pandemic first started, there was this kind of, we're all in it together, let's yeah. fundraise. Everyone fundraised for the NHS, which is... Yeah, which is crazy. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I personally find that really frustrating, but I'm aware that that's the motivation to fundraise was not yeah. to fundraise the NHS. It was the motivation of we want to be part of solving this pandemic. Yeah, yeah. And the NHS was doing that work, is doing that work. So it's completely natural that people wanted to help their local hospital. I completely get it. It's just that 
putting my you know thinking about it at a different level you're thinking well hang on you're fundraising for a publicly funded body <laughs> yeah. the organizations that really need the fundraisers you know, are, the, are the charities that aren't going to survive this mm. and there will be a lot of charities that do not survive the kind of the two years this will take minimum two years it will take for us to get out of this and i Claire House isn't one of them but we have you know we, we've got i think we've probably seen a million pound hit on our income and that's being relatively conservative um it's just that we've been able to mitigate for that through government grants so it hides the real problem which is then why we've had to look at because we could have just carried on as we were blindly kind of put our hands over our ears and, and go well it'll all be fine no it won't it's really not going to be fine unless we do something about it so we've had to reduce our wage bill in the knowledge that next year is going to be quite tough yeah um, but that's been mercifully quite straightforward um in a very heartless way you know if you weren't if you're not thinking about the people side of it and just thinking about right what roles do we absolutely need and what roles sit outside of those plans for the next couple of years that's been quite straightforward it's just that the people side of it is horrible i didn't come into this job to ever make people redundant no so it's it's been crap for us but much worse for a lot for a lot of others yeah. because a people are fundraising less but also that fundraising has been diverted into the nhs but for completely understandable reasons Thank you, David. There's been so much in that conversation that I know I want to go away and reflect on and think about. We like to finish each podcast with three or four take home tips for our listeners to reflect on. The name of this podcast is the Developing Practice Podcast. So is there anything that you can share with us that you could leave with our listeners just to help them to think about their own personal practice and maybe enhance that in the future? So I've got, I, I, well, I may or may not get this right. So we'll see. I've written down four things. First up is um, the, so the back to the Stephen Covey, seven habits. Seek first to understand. As I said, it's the one habit I find most difficult and it takes years of practice to get anywhere close to genuinely seeking first to understand. I think in pandemic times, listening to somebody else's experience and listening to how things genuinely are for other people is a really important part of or something we can do to help other people and their well-being really seek to understand people second one was be brave um probably the thing you're scared of doing is the thing you should be doing and applying that to Clare House it was probably facing into the pandemic and saying well actually what really is the impact of this and not ignoring it and then once you've accepted the awfulness of it you can then start to work on it and translate it into practical action. But even to the extent that if there's somebody that you think, well, I hope I don't see such and such today, there's a reason for that. And it's they're probably the absolute right person that you should be trying to bump into on that day. Give them a call on Zoom or Teams, see how they are. Because um, that's a relationship that clearly needs some work. So be brave. Third one is ask for feedback. Um, yeah, I don't like getting feedback. I mean, who likes getting feedback? You probably do as educators. You know, you're, 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 you're keen on feedback. I, I, I try, try hard to ensure people can give me feedback on how I'm doing and try hard to listen to the response because, and the reason I'm motivated to do that is because the alternative is people are thinking it and saying it anyway. So if somebody's thinking, oh, David's an idiot, he doesn't know what he's doing, or I wish he'd do this, that, and the other, I'm probably better off knowing it now than knowing it when I retire. Because you, you imagine your retirement party, you know, you have that retirement party, people have had a couple of couple of beers, a couple of glasses of Prosecco, and then someone wands up to you and said, you know what, I never liked you. I always found you really frustrating to work with because of this, this, and this. Now, I'd like to think I've got maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 years work left in me. I'm better off knowing those things now and I can choose to do something about it. I can choose not to, but feedback is painful. I mean, it's all, you know, feedback is painful, but it's, there's always, no matter how painfully it might be delivered, there's always some truth in it. So that would be number three. And the final one is then general well-being. I'd say invest in yourself. So it's so easy to get, to put others first. And by that, I mean, sometimes your job and 
I would, I try to book at least 30 minutes a day of something for me. Um, and that might be just nipping out for a run. So yesterday I just managed, I got half, half an hour and just ran to Red Rocks and back, which is the tip of the Wirral, just ran to Red Rocks and back and felt a lot better afterwards. Like you were saying, Alex, at the start, just get, get out and do, do something for you. Um, I think you are what you eat. You are what you do. You are how you think. So eat well, do stuff that makes you feel good. Spend time with people who make you feel good. Sleep well, try to be positive. Um, that's kind of, that's like 10 things in one. But, but Brilliant. really it is, <laughs> put, put time and effort into you. If, if it makes you, if, if putting time and effort into you makes you 5% better that day, then why wouldn't you do it? Wonderful. Thank you, David. There's so much in that. Um, we've really in appreciated and enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, thanks for your time. It's been great fun. Thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation with David and it's been really lovely to get to know him over the last couple of years through our work as governors at the local primary school and also sharing lifts to gymnastics um, with our children. I've really enjoyed talking to him about his leadership style. It seems he often leads with a question rather than a directive and I've seen him do that time and time again. I like what he said about Covey's work um, and where Covey says that we should seek first to understand. And that's really evident in the approach that he takes to leadership. He says he tries really hard to hear people first before he gives his own opinion. And then when he does give his opinion, he's seeking to test that opinion rather than present it as fact. So I'm going to reflect on that in terms of my practice. Yeah, I agree with that. Right from the beginning of our chat, we got a real insight into how David leads at Clare House. He spoke about being willing to be put into any situation and to support his team in any activity they wish. And, and that style to encourage from behind rather than you know, putting his own ego first has obviously led to him becoming a really successful leader in that sector. If you'd like to take your thinking further, we've added some further resources to the website on a specific podcast reading list that you can access at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy forward slash podcast. And you can also find on there the link to Live to Give, which will detail the three charities that we're supporting this year. Also, let us know what you thought about the episode at Live Uni Academy. And you can also find us at eLearnerMatt and me at Alexandra underscore Owen on Twitter. Yep, yeah, and we're really grateful for those who have taken the time to either rate or review our show in your podcast provider's app. So if you are an Apple user, please do take the time to review our show as it really will help others find us. Bye for now. Bye.